Hello and welcome to the Economy, Land and Climate podcast. My name is Bertie harrison Brolinski, and for this episode I spoke to Yeb Sanyo, currently the Executive Director of Greenpeace Southeast Asia and previously the Chief Negotiator for the Philippines in the UN Climate Convention, about a groundbreaking report from the Philippines Human Rights Commission. The report identifies the human rights infringed by climate change, the companies responsible for those infringements, and how those companies and governments should be held legally accountable. If the boardrooms of the corporations that are identified as respondents to our case do not respond at all to, to, to this breakthrough, then I don't know how we will ever avert the climate crisis because I think this should send some shockwaves into those boardrooms, into the, into the community of shareholders of these corporations. Our conversation came as Bong Bong Marcos, son of infamous ousted dictator Ferdinand Marcos, had just been elected as the new Filipino president for the next six years. I began by asking for a background to how the report had come about. We, of course, were inspired by the energy around the communities and people impacted by climate impacts in the Philippines. And Super Typhoon Haiyan was, a, of course, a defining moment for, for the country. And that led to the impetus on filing this particular petition with the Commission on Human Rights in 2015, almost seven years ago, together with many other community organizations, NGOs, and uh, individuals who had survived extreme climate events, we decided to put this case together. And it's it's been a long journey, uh, close to seven years. And even before we filed the case in 2015, it was two, a couple of years since Super Typhoon Haiyan then. So a lot of things had been transpiring and we, we, we've been getting a lot of inspiration from, you know, the courage of people who refuse to believe that there's nothing we can do about the climate crisis. And and then the seminal work of uh, Rick Heedy, uh, working on uh, climate accountability and identifying all of these corporations, uh, roughly 100 corporations responsible for about two-thirds of the climate crisis, a lion's share of the climate crisis. And that led us to think, wow, these things can actually be attributed to somebody. And so we tried it. We, in fact, had a very deep dive into how we will do it. And there were options uh, to file the case in a regular court of law. There were options to file it uh, with with the Supreme Court, for example, of the Philippines uh, and make it a test case. But after much discussion with all of the petitioners, we decided why not try the national human rights institutions such as the Philippines Commission on Human Rights. After all, what what we're trying to assert is that climate change is infringing on the basic enjoyment of, of human rights. So so we did that. And in, in September 2015, we got together and lodged the case. And I think I'm right in saying this is the first report or inquiry like this from a national human rights institution. I know the report talks a little bit at the beginning about how Inuit communities tried something similar in America a while back. Did you think anything would actually come of this petition or did you expect it to be a flop? Yes and no. Um, There's always a lot of uh, room for, I think, skepticism around landmark cases that have that are unprecedented like this so since indeed it is the first of its kind there's no precedent there's no 
model for it. Uh, no one knows how other jurisdictions have treated anything like this before. So yes, definitely a lot of uh, of worry in our hearts and in our heads whether this would prosper. But then again, we were in a situation where um, the Commission on Human Rights in the Philippines was seen as a very progressive institution uh, that understood the reality of climate change. And so that gave us some hope that uh, the Commission uh, would set out to work very profoundly on this issue, and they did. It's a huge document that has been produced looking into the various human rights that are infringed by climate change, who's responsible and potentially what people could do about that to hold governments and companies accountable. How do you feel about it? Are you pleased with the result? And also, has it made any kind of real impact in the Philippines? Are people talking about this? And on the first question, it goes without saying that we're very happy that it's finally out because uh, it's been a long waiting game for us. We we launched it in 2015, as I told you. And then the public hearing, hearings happened in around 2017, 2018, including one in London, one in New York. It's been quite a long, long wait for, for us. So just to see it finally released is a big relief for us. It's a reason for us to celebrate the triumph of climate justice. And I, I have described this many times as a vindication for those who are experiencing firsthand at the front lines of climate impacts. And so it's a very important report, I, I think. And while I, I think this should merit a lot of attention, not just in the Philippines, but globally, it also came at such a uh, disorienting time in the Philippines when we were about to have our national elections selecting the, the next president of the country. And it's been a very polarized situation. I think that in the Philippines, it's not even unique in that sense. It's happening in many parts of the world where the climate crisis is becoming a secondary issue compared to all of the things happening, whether it's um, the shrinking of civic uh, and democratic space, fake news, and then, of course, uh, conflicts like uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Um, a lot of things are, are happening that, that uh, and in, in particular, when this report was released, no one was paying attention to this, uh, really. And so I couldn't say whether this is resonating loudly right now because uh, of the circumstances under which it was released. But um, we have... We have, of course, gotten a lot of questions from the media uh, and in the community of climate justice activists. Uh, of course, it, uh, it has been well celebrated. You mentioned the international context there. Do you think this will have an impact abroad? It clearly addresses lots of international issues and a lot of the companies it's talking about are foreign. How significant is the precedent that's being set with a national human rights institution doing something like this? I'd like to believe so, yes. And that was the original intention for, for filing this case, so that it would strengthen the alarm bells being sounded by the scientific community, by communities uh, uh, impacted by, by climate change. And, and I would think that this, this could provide a necessary push to the seemingly um, lack of ambition that we see in the implementation of the Paris Agreement. I mean, the Paris Agreement um, was agreed also in 2015, same year we filed this case, and it just becomes frustrating for us to see that um, the Paris Agreement was proven to be not, not enough at all uh, to, to provide what is necessary to avert the climate crisis. 
and then uh, the commitments that are supposed to come with it are, are not, not forthcoming. And that's why we have decided that the climate justice work uh, cannot be confined in the plenary halls of the UN. We need to go go further and um, creative legal action, including uh, pieces of, of, uh, of litigation, we think could accelerate, could catalyze action. And if the boardrooms of the corporations that are identified as respondents to our case do not respond at all to to this breakthrough, then I don't know how we will ever avert the climate crisis because I think this should send some shockwaves into those boardrooms, into the into the community of shareholders of these corporations, uh, even if this is not something that would provide any legal sanctions. I think the message is clear. What has been identified in a way that's never been done before is that uh, for the first time, a, an, a formal institution has declared uh, that uh, climate change is responsible for the violation of human rights, that um, businesses have been involved in willful obfuscation and deception and could be held morally liable for, for that. If I were a shareholder of one of these companies, I'd be very worried. So uh, that's that's one of the intentions of, of this whole journey. And, and not just companies, of course. Governments need to pay attention to this. And I'm, I'm actually quite glad that... Uh, a few colleagues uh, from my former circles in the diplomatic circles have reached out asking me to present the findings or, or how I feel about the findings in the next uh, UNFCCC session in Bonn. So I might not be able to go there, but uh, at least all, all of the signals are showing um, positive, positive uh, signs. I think I'm right in saying that none of the content of the report is legally forcible in itself, but there is a lot of legal discussion within it, right? And one of those parts is discussing how businesses could be held legally accountable by incorporating the UN guiding principles on business and human rights into domestic law. Do you think that that's something that could happen now as a result of this report? How significant was that analysis? A lot of the hope that we have uh, rests on the the way that Principles, for example, including including the respect for for human rights uh, in the in the context of uh, how how co- companies run their business, in, in the way that they actually resonate in those communities of of, of people, right? And and we can only guess uh, how the, how they would respond, really. And 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 of course, uh, the UN is there, and then the discussion around business and, and human rights that will really depend on whether. One, governments take that seriously. Number two, whether whether companies take that seriously, and and right now it's it's not very easy to judge that. However, uh, we will not stop. Of course, after the the resolution of this case, we will not stop. We will then use the findings of this case uh, to further lobby for 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 the recommendations that have been identified by the by the commission. So uh, it will, of course, require a lot more groundwork, a lot more. Uh, activism it will require a lot more conversations and that's why i'm always happy for friends who who want to help tell the story like like we are doing so now we haven't got time to discuss all of them in full but i just quickly want to run through the list of human rights because we've now actually got an exhaustive list of human rights that are violated by climate change so the report discusses the right to life the right to health the right to food security the right to water and sanitation, the right to livelihood, the right to adequate housing, the right to preservation of culture, 
the right to self-determination and development, the right to equality and non-discrimination, the right to safe, clean, healthy environments, the rights of intergenerational equity. Were there any there that surprised you or that you thought were particularly important to have now been platformed? The truth is I was surprised that all of these things were even articulated in the report. Because it's one thing to just say in a very general sense that climate change is in fact impacting on human rights, but to list down all of these rights uh, in detail and providing examples and testimonies from people and communities affected by all of this is a big surprise for me. Of course, we have, uh, we have in our manifestations have mentioned all of these rights as very important. Um, and so we're just really uh, very enthused no end that um, this has been brought to uh, even a higher level by defining how these rights are being affected. So wonderful work by the commission uh, articulating this very clearly. You mentioned earlier about the election that's just happened in the Philippines, and I did also want to talk to you about that. It wasn't lost on me that the very first paragraph of uh, the report began by saying that Quote, the Human Rights Commission was created under the banner of Never Again after the ouster of Ferdinand Marcos, under whose rule thousands of Filipinos' human rights were trampled on. End quote. I guess I'd start by saying from the little I've heard and read about the election, it seems like intense policy debate wasn't a huge part of the campaigns, but is there any indication of how climate policy might change under Marcos Jr. in the Philippines? That's a really important question for us to ask uh, because the Philippines is, happens to be uh, one of the most vulnerable countries to, to, to climate change. And therefore, national leadership is key in helping us get through the storm uh, and even the literal storms that we face, uh, the kind of adaptation measures we put in place, the kind of leapfrogging the Philippines takes in order to model the right kind of development that avoids the mistakes of industrialized countries. Unfortunately, the, the, Marcos, uh, the Marcos campaign never really had the, the inclination to even articulate any kind of platform. So they have not presented any concrete platform for governance. They, they have even avoided uh, presidential debates and have not actively engaged on, on the issue. And in addition to that, we see that because of the highly polarized political picture right now, the priorities of the incoming administration will most likely focus on political consolidation of power uh, rather than big picture issues such as such as the uh, you know climate policy. I would like just just to be fair, um, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. had been vocal about uh, the acceleration of renewable energy development in the country, and that's good. However, he's also uh, advocating for nuclear power. He's also also advocating for genetically modified food. And so I think there is a lot more to, to do in terms of uh, the conversation that we need to have with the incoming government. And what I also want to emphasize is uh, expectations, because injustice for us and at the heart of this petition at the CHR is injustice, climate injustice, but in, in whatever form, but especially climate injustice, it's a consequence of historically unjust actions, right? So with the Marcos family unyielding with their historical responsibility and persistent evasion of their accountability for their ill-gotten wealth. There's little to expect from the, this incoming government when it comes to addressing anything of, uh, uh, that speaks about human rights and justice and uh, defending the interests of the vulnerable and marginalized and fostering fairness 
across society. So that's that's a big problem. I I, I always like to to believe that uh, a democratically mandated uh, leadership, such as uh, the incoming administration, will have enough space and power, right, coming from uh, from a landslide victory that that we saw to do the things that are necessary to uh, to address, especially the climate crisis. So we are still hoping that could happen. It would really be important for them to allow civic participation in all of these conversations. Otherwise, if we continue with uh, the kind of impunity we have seen in previous years, it would be very difficult for us to expect anything uh, of substance uh, in the coming years. Of course, there is also the problem of uh, participation in the international processes. I think I could say that uh, this is an awkward moment for the Philippines, having ousted Ferdinand Marcos Sr. 36 years ago. Uh, everyone who would go to the UN will now be representing Ferdinand Marcos Jr. as a delegate. That could be very tricky. I know a lot of the focus in this report is on companies, particularly on the oil and gas majors like BP, Chevron, ExxonMobil, Shell, Total Energies, RWE, etc. They're all mentioned. But the report does also get stuck into government's role and states that if governments don't have a climate strategy that they're transparent about and that they can be held accountable to, that's framed as a legal issue and a human rights issue too. So I was interested to ask you, I mean, does the Philippines have that kind of climate mitigation strategy that it can be held accountable to? Do you think that this report could be setting up the foundations of a legal framework to challenge the government over that? The situation right now for the Philippines is uh, the country has uh, NDCs that have been submitted, but these NDCs, uh, but the NDCs that are on the table are not necessarily ambitious. It has a lot of conditional aspects to it. So I think in terms of what is in place uh, as uh, mitigation actions um, that we can be held accountable for or that, that the Philippines can be held accountable for, I think on one hand, it's not very clear. There's a lot of vagueness in, in, in that sense because there are no specifics as to which sector would do that. A 70% reduction below business as usual is hard to measure because we don't even know what business as usual is really in terms of that, that uh, emissions trajectory. So there's a lot to be done in order to clarify uh, those. But on the other hand, the Philippines, as we always assert, and even when I was a negotiator asserted, the rich countries, uh, those who have emitted the most, need to lead this process. And so uh, I don't think the Philippines need to be held accountable so much uh, in terms of mitigation. But I think in terms of what is ethically possible for, for the Philippines and what is, I think, unethical for the Philippines to avoid, we should look at that. For example, if there is tremendous opportunity for leapfrogging into cleaner development, or if we if we can harness all of our renewable energy that's already available and at parity in terms of price with the, uh, with conventional fuels, then it would be it would really be immoral or uh, at least unethical for the Philippines not to not to pursue that kind of path, uh, and and therefore we can be measured as such because uh, if if things are low hanging, and uh, and we we fail we we fail to take those opportunities then. I think we should measure the country through through those things. Uh, same with adaptation measures. Anything that uh, increases the the risk for people, uh, for if the government continues with corruption that um, that uh, prevents us from providing the means to move people out of harm's way, then that is that is something 
that should be we government should be accountable for. That's how I see it. And this particular report has many good recommendations for for governments, and I think many of these apply to developing countries like the Philippines, including the promotion of awareness and education, um, strengthening efforts uh, for restorative uh, ecosystem management. All of these things are here, and then including just transition, because uh, we believe that uh, if we are to transition towards cleaner development, we need to take into account the impacts on the labor sector, on the agriculture sector, and buffer those impacts and make sure that no one is left behind because that's what it's all about. Uh, justice is not just uh, about uh, fulfilling what science requires to solve the climate crisis, but also to make sure that science and justice serves its purpose. My thanks to Yeb Sanyo for coming on this podcast. Do check the description below. We'll link the full report if you want to read it. If you enjoyed this episode, please do check out our other articles on elc-insight.org and subscribe or follow this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen on. And we'll be back soon with more interesting interviews with climate experts.